Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. This is Between the Lines. It's a podcast where we go beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories, talk about the cases and events that have impacted their lives. Welcome, everyone. I'm Brent Hinson, kind of a jack of all trades when it comes to Between the Lines, announcer, co-host, social media manager, you name it. I pretty well do it with podcast. And I'm always welcomed by my main man, the guy who runs things on this podcast, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you doing, Michael? Buddy, I'm doing good, but uh, I, I, I love your voice. I just have to throw that out there. Your voice is like silver. It's like fine well, silk. I kind of have one of those uh, radio voices where it's, hey, 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 you know, pop DJ. <laughs> well, it's almost like you've done that before, isn't it? Just a little bit. <laughs> hey, well, it's good to be back here today, but uh, I'm super excited about our episode today. Super excited. In fact, I'm going to give everybody a warning out there. Um, the dorkiness is likely to come out strong during this podcast. Just throwing you it do out some there. Fanboying, huh? What? Not only that, but I've told you guys that I'm jealous of both you and our executive producer being musicians. And not only do I have a face made for radio, I have a voice made for silence and and, and musical skills that are non-existent. But I, I'm sitting here today with somebody that I started following a few years ago. I found out about him through uh, one of our former guests, Joe Willis, who, who I consider both a friend and a mentor. Uh, but he, he he directed me to this guy, and, and I've been a big fan ever since. So I would like to welcome Dave Bray to the podcast. Welcome, sir. What is going on, guys? And if we're doing the whole podcast, are we doing the whole podcast in radio voice? I think that would lose its flavor after a while. <laughs> It'd be fun for a couple of minutes. Join us next time. <laughs> you know what, though? It's it's so much fun to have you here because uh, not only do you do a job that I wish that I was uh, I could be involved in, but I, I, love, I love your history. I love what you're doing. So why don't we just jump into that and start talking about things. Sure, man. Sure. So it's my understanding that you are a military veteran. Is that true? I am prior service military Navy Marine Corps guy. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, what did you do in the Navy? Navy taught me how to do laundry and then the Marine Corps <laughs> taught me how to kill people and put them back together, <laughs> which is very similar to laundry. If you really think about it, you know what I mean? You destroy it and then you put it through the wash and then you fold it, make it look pretty and put it, put it back in its place. Yeah. That kind of sounds like my kids destroying the clothes. So, so you start off in the Navy, learned how to do laundry, which is a skill that uh, you probably still get to put to use every now and then. And then you went over the Marine Corps. How did they teach you? I guess. So what was what was your MOS? What was it called? You got to kind of go back to Navy first, because without one, there is you can't really get to the other. So I wanted to, you know, I was gung ho. I was a high school madman, wanted to be a commando, wanted to be a SEAL. And I was just like, you know, I'm going to join the Navy. I'm going to go be a SEAL. Then I find out I'm colorblind. Of course, you can't be colorblind because, you know, cut the green wire, boom, right? So <laughs> at least that's what they told me. So that was kind of out of the question. They're like, well, why don't you try, if you want to do something kind of high speed, why don't you go be a corpsman? And then if, if you get like into the, into the Navy, you can possibly go with the Marine Corps. And I was like, sounds like a decent idea. My buddy's dad was a, an FMF doc in Vietnam. And then he was like also a reservist and then he, a football coach. And I just looked up to him and he was just a hard charger, kind of mean like a rattlesnake, but, you know, big heart and just a good dude. And I was like, that, that could work for me. I can kind of see myself going down that road. But yeah, so got in the Navy and then went through boot camp, went through A school and and they show up to my first duty station as a as a young hospitalman. And it was like bedside nursing and nothing against the veteran community, but 
humans on their last leg is just nothing I want to be around on a day-to-day basis. You know, whether it's the dementia or physically ailing or falling apart, slowly dying, rotting on the body, whatever you want to call it. Just felt like a place that I just, as a young firecracker, I just wanted to do something different. That wasn't for me. So I kind of started, I don't want to say acting out, but I just didn't want to really be in that scenario anymore. So I would, you know, I'd spend a little excess time in the gym and start hanging out with people that were on the, you know, doing other things. And I ended up training with some, some of the, you know, team guys that were on the base. And I just started trying to find mentors that were doing something other than hospital care. And I found the EMT guys and, uh, I wanted to go with them and, you know, I basically showed up you know, one day to, you know, my ward, uh, like a nurse. And I was just like, dude, this is not happening for me. I was like, I need something else. This ain't filling my cup. And uh, they're like, what do you want? I was like, well, I've been spending time, you know, down in the ER. Most people are out partying and drinking Friday, Saturday nights. I'm going out of the ER Friday and Saturday nights. I'm volunteering and I'm putting some time in. I said, I really want to do EMS. I was like, I'd like to start there. You know, and here I am. 18, 19 years old, just fresh out of high school, getting my hands bloody. I think I'm awesome, right? So they sent me out to the EMS squad and most of those guys are ex-FMF guys. So they already served with the Marine Corps and they kind of read me into how to transfer over and cross over, go to the the next A school, or I guess it's field medical training battalion and uh, what to expect there and sort of prepped me in that world of combat medicine. So that's kind of where my intrigue, or I guess you could say my intrigue Uh, in that combat medicine sort of realm came into light. And that was my next step. So I put in for papers early to get over and get the heck out of hospital life. I worked as an EMS, EMT crew chief for a while in Charleston Naval Hospital and then crossed over to the Marine Corps and uh, found my home there. Very good. So so for our listeners and, and for my benefit, uh, what, what is an FMF? So Corman has sub ratings, just kind of like a lot of other MOSs, like um, Quad Zero Corman is is one thing, is IDC Corman is a different thing. You you sort of have different ranks and labels and parenthetic devices that you that go with being uh, an FMF Corman. So Fleet Marine Corman is basically a Corman that has crossed over. You've gone out of the Dixie Cup side of the of the Navy, and you're no longer working in a battalion aid station or in a or a clinic or anything like that, and you've crossed over to the Marine Corps side of things. That's a different house. It's almost like uh, the difference between like Gryffindor and and friggin' Hugglepuff. You know what I mean? It's like two different things all together. So it's a whole different schooling and a whole different sort of basic training you have to go through. They sort of break you back down as a unit, and then they build you back up to be read into what what is happening in the Marine world, what it looks like what the brotherhood looks like and they set a higher standard for you as far as a combat medic and that's just basically that school so they take you from clinical medicine to combat medicine like i said and i, I was like uh, peas and carrots in there on account of the fact that i spent a lot of time with ems emts and, and the emergency room and then crossing over into combat medicine a lot of that transferred real easy for me so that was my world and um, i did really good in the school I graduated as a top dog, which is basically the best way to describe it is like top gun. You know what I mean? So I was like, you know, got my name on the plaque on the wall in the back of the room. And the alternate was still in the ladies room for the, for my buddy (laughs) Lynch, who he was still pissed at me that I won that. (laughs) I got out and never went on graduation day. Uh, a lot of people took, you know, in 96 and went home and did what they wanted to do. They took the liberty. And I literally took 15 minutes to get in a cab and go show up at my battalion aid station because I just wanted I wanted dibs on whatever was coming. I was like, I wanted the best. I was like, give me whatever the best is. What do you got? And I knew about recon, knew about force recon guys, which is now like MARSOC. Um but I didn't know what state platoon was. And when I showed up there, they're like, dude, what do you want to do? I was like, well, you know, 
this is this is where where I'm coming from. Where do you think I'd fit in there? Like, man, you'd be perfect for Stapleton. Can you run? I said, yeah, I can run. And I said, okay, but I don't want to stay anywhere. I want to I want to be going. Like, I want to be moving forward. I want to be away. I want to be you know as much activity as high speed as you can give it. That's what I want. And uh, he's like, oh no, you'll you'll be all right over there. So I showed up uh, literally 15, 20 minutes out of graduation. I'm green press camis. I mean, high and tight haircut, and I hear. It was either Megadeth or Metallica from like this the this one this this one barracks area, and I'm like, man, what the hell's going on over there? And they got some Hummers that are just covered in mud, and and I walk over to them, and I'm just like, hey, man, I, is this Stapleton? They're like, who are you? And I was like, I'm Doc Bray, and he's like, guys, like, are you the new guy? I was like, yeah. He's like, go see so and so. And I was just like, all right, where's that? And he pointed to a room. He's like, wait, wait, wait. I was like, what's up? And he's like, can you run? I was like, yeah, I can run. He's like, okay, good. So <laughs> this continued through about four or five more rooms as I'm going down. I'm, I'm sort of trickling down the food chain, you know, met the platoon sergeant, came down through. There were a couple of the corporals were just like, yeah. And every time it was like, you're the new doc. Okay, cool. Are you, you know, can you carry weight? Can you run? It was, it was the only thing they cared about. Didn't matter if I could save your life. It, it didn't, none of that stuff mattered. Can you run? Can you carry an extra hundred pounds of gear? And, you know, can you do, a, you know, a hundred pull-ups and, and, and a hundred sit-ups and a hundred push-ups. That's all they really cared about because as a corpsman, you are now in their circle and they are going to use you for everything they possibly can to get a better result out of whatever their mission is. So you're now, yes, you're an emergency case scenario situation, sort of break glass in case of emergency, but you're also an extra guy to pack meal shit in and out of <laughs> the combat. Yep. So, that's the story, man. So I did I take you by surprise where like you weren't expecting that. No, nah, man, I, I, I chewed on that stuff. They're like, Hey man, you, you know how to use a satellite community? I was like, no. And they're like, well, here, put it in, put it in your bag. I'll, I'll show you once we get out. <laughs> once you carry it out there, you know anything about field antennas? I'm like, no, I was like, they're like, well, it's just a lot of wire and here, put it in your pack and, and we'll show you how to do it out in the field. I'm just like, Ugh. okay, this thing's starting to get a little heavy. What do you know about crypto? Um, nothing, but let me guess. Yeah. Throw it in the pack and then you're going to show me out in the field. So that was it, man. The first day, first couple of weeks, these guys were doing field ops. Their last corpsman basically quit on them. He couldn't hang anymore. And I'm like 6'3", 215 pounds. I'm in really good shape at this time. I'm like 5% body fat. I'm eating all the right foods. I'm hitting the gym twice a day. I'm cardio. I'm this, that. And so I showed up ready to go. And uh, and I started, like I said, I took everything that they could possibly put on my shoulders. And I just did it. And it was a test. I didn't know how much of a test it was. But um, most of those guys have to end doc to get into this program. Um, you have to pass, uh, you know, a high stress indoctrination. And this was my indoctrination. You know, I'm a corpsman. Yeah, I get to wear the uniform. But man, you also got to be able to hang. So the first week or so was grueling. I mean, it was ridiculous. The amount of field time we were doing um, and the amount of just PT and running and pack runs and and swims. We would run down to Onslow Beach. We would swim the pier and back. We run back 10 miles, you know. It was just, it was just grueling. And uh, But I found out real quick what they were looking for. And I realized it sort of, like I said, coming out of that environment with the school and the, sort of the, the medical basic training, field training. I put the two and two together and was just like, all right, just hang with these dudes. You know, don't try to infiltrate. Just be a support mechanism for them at first. And uh, that worked. And finally, you know, they started talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's a special thing to become a part of a team like that. Yeah, It's just not a right. 
you know, it's a responsibility and it requires dedication. Yeah. I, and I think I, that's exactly what they were looking for. And the thing about the sniper teams is usually they're the first guys in, they go in the lightest, they don't, they take the least amount of stuff and they're usually the last guys out. So there's like zero comforts. It's all about mission, mission, mission. And being that you're basically their hospital or their backup unit and they're spread, you know, depending how wide the, the on, on site perimeter is for whatever the target is, they can be spread different buildings. They can be spread different mountaintops, hilltops. There's just a lot of responsibility being sort of the medical uh, liaison. Basically you're the FO medical personnel out there. So it's like, how do you, how do you ensure that if, you know, God forbid, you know, one of these guys goes, falls over a cliff or, you know, goes down and with a snake bite or, you know, takes an impaled object or something. You never know with the amount of weight and the amount of gear, these guys got to move quietly and to get in a position, whether it's, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the field or in, in an urban situation, it's just very strenuous. And there's a lot of communication and responsibility as that medical person, you know, not only is it just about a lot of people are like, Hey doc, what you know, it's Motrin, it's duct tape. It's, it's, it's freaking drink water. Right. And it's like, yeah, kind of change your socks. Yeah. Yeah. Dry socks. <laughs> Both of you guys got dry socks. Right. <laughs> but OD green. But yeah, man, that, that was where I sort of cut my teeth with everything. And then, um, you know, urban sniper schools and extra training and SOTG special operations training groups and things like that, working up for, for the float. And then uh, we deployed, we went over to Africa. We were in Monrovia, Liberia during Operation Assured Response, which is just a, another one of these little flare-ups in the middle of nowhere. And we took basically what they should have done with Benghazi. We took we took a bunch of Marines and we just, they got a distress call about a civil, you know, civil war sort of brewing out outside of the Monrovian embassy. And the distress call hit the Marines and the Marines are like, yep, inbound. We'll be there and be there. Maverick supersonic. I'll be there in about two <laughs> minutes. You know what I mean? So we just covered the whole place in green sniper team set up on top of all the embassy buildings. And, uh, basically, like I said, they did what, what should have happened in Benghazi. They should have covered that place with the Marines and gotten ready for anything that was coming. And, uh, that's what we did. Well, there's one thing you said that, that I, I really liked. They said, you're their hospital. And I like that thing right there because it, it described for me how different your training was when you were training for that being their hospital and working in the hospital because that training had to be considerably different because the patient sure. was different. Sure. I mean, despite the obvious, you know, the hospital has all the luxuries, right? You have every, every possible thing. You, you got a doctor within arm's reach. You have all, all the clinical necessities you may or may not need for whatever comes across. But in the field, like I said, you have to, as they were loading me up with, you know, comms gears and crypto and extra stuff, I was actually filling their cargo pockets. I was like, you, you know, you don't need that, you know, extra coffee. Give me that. Give me that. And I was like, you don't need that. Give me that. And, you know, this mission is literally five days. You're not going to need that much food, you know, make a little kit, basically uh, almost like a unit one that you would be able to take. And if, if something would happen, I would be able to walk the other person through what needed to be done. We would also do many clinicals. I would take the Marine and I would sit down and be like, hey, listen, I'm not going to be the only one who knows how to give an IV, put a needle in. I'm not going to be the only one who knows how to throw a tourniquet on. I'm not going to be the only one who knows how to deal with a tension pneumo. I'm not going to be the only one who knows how to stop bleeding. I'm not going to be the only one who does that. If you guys are in another building, you're going to bleed out and die before I get there. So here's the deal. Train up your, you know, your, your guys.
guys that you're out there with be the person that can get there and knows how to get the air to get out, knows how to work the, the system to get out, has that in the back of their mind, has not only the clinical knowledge, and but it also has the tactical knowledge to be able to move guys in and out of a situation, hopefully without losing the entire op. There's just a lot of things that go together with it. You know, when you put all those things together, plus you're the guy that's muling in and out comms gear and, you know, bouncing satellites and getting comms and helping with that, you become literally more than just part of the team, you become almost a figurehead or, or a leader in a sense. And a lot of it is about building that trust mechanism. Guy goes down, even if it's something stupid, sprained ankle, you know, knee dislocated, shoulder, whatever, even in a training situation, how you handle that training situation, you know, are you popping a flare and, and freaking out? Or are you saying, all right, listen, dude, you're going to be all right. First, take a breath. I'm going to be there. Or somebody's going to be there shortly. Keep the mission at hand. Don't lose sight of the objective and go through can you talk your guy into pushing on is there a way that you can you know teach him how to put a freaking log up under his own arm and reset it to get it back into socket you know there's just a lot of things that you can do but again i'm sort of yammering on about no, all this stuff I, I find it fascinating because that's what uh, some of the stuff that we try and teach uh in our officer safety stuff because uh, a, a good friend of ours a good friend of mine graham tinius uh, his big thing is uh, he likes wearing shirts uh, when he's training people no one's coming so if no one's right. coming you know, you know, that means you have to be prepared to treat yourself because the hospital may be treating somebody else right now. You know, the medic may not be able to get to you because of the tactical situation. And so when I hear you training like that, it does my heart good because that's the way our people need to be trained. And it wasn't it wasn't guided that way. It was just it was one of those things that looking at every situation, you know, they would sit and be like, we'd, we'd be in a briefing room going over what, you know, whatever the op was. And they're like, okay, you know, team one's here, team two, team three, and team four. And these are usually two and three guy teams. So usually scout sniper, you got your, you got your spotter and you got your sniper on each team. And then you got your FO spot, which usually has your, your low brass, either platoon sergeant or staff NCO and me. And that's, sort of the fo that's the forward base that's the main comms right so we're basically eyes on the operation plus nobody ever sat down and said okay okay when you get into this situation you're gonna have to make sure you guys know this this and this it was it really really came down to common sense uh, you know sitting in a, in a briefing room saying okay if team three is literally three quarters of a mile that way and team four is a, almost a mile that way and something happens with team three or something happens with team four there's no air to team three to team four and i can't get those guys out and one of those guys is busted and bruised how am i supposed to get him out if if i'm already down here with team one you know like right. putting those two and two together like well you better figure something out doc and all right so it wasn't you know it, it even came down to the logistics there was just so much more on our shoulders and so many less people. It was just, hey, you got your platoon, make it happen. This is this is what high brass wants, make it happen. Figure out a way, overcome the situation, overcome the obstacles, figure out a way that everybody's not only gonna just do this thing, but you know, you put safety first into it and uh, sometimes safety first, but you know, <laughs> it's not corporate. Right. Don't get me wrong. It ain't corporate, but <laughs> well, you know, let me ask you this right here in your experience. Did you find those that were most prepared, most ready to handle one of those types of situations? Panic less. If you got the proper training, less, let less panic out there. Sure. Sure. You know, if you got, I mean, you got, you know, I had, I had a Marine that was, you know, we didn't cover prickly heat. So when your ass gets sweaty, you get with this stuff called prickly heat and he's freaking out. Right. He's like, there's something wrong. I got bit by something. It was a snake. I was like, dude, it's prickly heat. He's like, well, what the hell is that, man? He's like, my ass doesn't feel right. I'm like, bro, just chill. He's like, you need to cut, bring some, bring some lotion or calamine. I was like, dude, no, I, there's nothing to be done. 
till you get your ass home, get in a shower and get dried <laughs> off, dude. There's nothing to be done about it. Suck it up, buttercup. That's right. And and it's, you know, like I said, you're right, though. If you have and, and not to mention it's a confidence builder for them, you know, part of going out into the field with, you know, this goes back in into the, the beginning, early days of of the hospital corpsman and the core of hospital corpsman being connected to the Marines was it gave them a feeling of invincibility, knowing that if they went down, there was a guy behind them who was going to crawl over the, over the wire to grab them, not only grab them, drag their asses back, not only drag their asses back, put them back together and keep them alive to either send them home or keep pulling triggers, stacking bodies. And, you know, that's, that's the idea of a Marine. That's, that's the bonus chip in the back of their mind. They're like, well, yeah, I might get shot, but I got doc behind me to throw a finger in the hole. And that is a huge responsibility, but it's, it's also a confidence booster to them to go and fight fearlessly. And that's why Marines fight so fearlessly is because they know if something that God forbid something happens, they got somebody out there to help put them back together. You talked earlier that you had somebody that had been FMF in Vietnam. Did you ever get a chance to talk to that person and get a sense of how medicine, medical technology, medical treatment in the field has changed since that time? To the current time back then that's that was that was before i went in and again he was more of a mentor so no i didn't really get a chance to sit and go through his personal experience but i will say this not a lot has changed it's not like the human anatomy has changed there's a couple things uh, you got some you got some different blood clotters and, and things that you can use now there's a couple different tools and techniques but for the most part it's still airway you know make sure the guy can breathe even if you got a jag a pen in his neck um you know make sure he can get oxygen in and out of his lungs make sure he's not bleeding out and said send his ass on a stretcher stabilize the neck and move to the next guy depending on what the situation is obviously more time and care given if it's a single but in vietnam you know these guys were completely different world and if you survived like the snakes, the spiders, the centipedes that were like 10, 12 inches long that bite in your neck at night and poison, and you know, wake up and your hand is size of a balloon and you still got to go to war. If you survived all those things, you know what I mean? God forbid you got shot and you got to survive the gangrene and all the fungus and all the things that, that we, you know, we dealt with back then. Obviously, it's a little different, but the anatomy and physiology of the human species still needs all the same things in order to survive. So it hasn't really changed. That I, I guess the point I'm trying to get across is that training's the key. You know, don't, don't get so caught up at the new gadgets and stuff like that. It's the preparedness when you go out there in the field. And that's what our first responders do uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. The application of a tourniquet is, is one of the, and I even talked to some people about developing embedded tourniquets into, you know, a type of pant and a type of overshirt that if you have a situation, it's just a, as simple as grab and pull and your tourniquet. You, you know what I mean? If you, if need be on a leg, you can grab and pull and get one on and still stay in a fight. The time it takes, if you think about six pints of blood, this is basically it. So you, everybody's drank a beer, cold beer out of a pint glass, right? Six of these. So how long would it take you to slow pour six of these out? Maybe five minutes, six minutes. And if you think about that, you got a guy sitting there, wham, you're hit in shock. You got one of the major arteries blasted less than six minutes, three, you know, if it's a leg, 
if you don't get something on that, and even like I said, now you're in shock. And this is this is why you see these Navy SEAL guys and stuff. They'll they'll, they'll put themselves in a box the size of a, oh I don't know a, a washer or dryer would fit, and they'll throw it in a they'll blindfold themselves. They'll throw it in, into a hot you know into a shed somewhere. They'll sit them in there and they'll sit and beat on the box for like twenty minutes, thirty minutes, and then they'll then they'll just kick the box open. It's bright lights. They grab the guy. They throw him in a a tub of ice and then they pop them up and then they, they say, boom, your right arm's gone. What are you going to do? You know what I mean? They put you in such a mind shock because how, how else are you going to simulate, you know, literally looking down and seeing your leg gone? Like, how are you going to prepare yourself for that shock? Uh, that's going to immediately set in, you know, you need to be able to function in the, even in those circumstances. So again, classroom training is great. But literally getting out there and being in the heat and being in the situations, being geared up, being kitted up, whatever you're doing, that's where you train. Like classroom's awesome, but hands on, a lot of that classroom goes away and it becomes muscle memory. It's just like operating a weapon. You're in a situation, you hear gunshots. You know what I mean? Are you going to sit there and fumble with your weapon? Oh my gosh, I'm, I, don't, I don't know what the, the motor sequence is to get a, to a round in a chamber and, and actually hide myself at the same time. There's a million things going on through your mind. How are you going to, how are you going to adapt to that? How are you going to prepare yourself for that? And you're right. It comes down to training. It comes down to getting out there and just grinding at it to the point where you're like, Oh, okay, I got it. Okay, good. You got it. Guess what we're doing tomorrow? Same thing all day. It's like groundhog's day. Yep. But just like groundhog's day, you should be getting better every day. The, the, those things doing the same thing over and over, not making the same mistakes, getting better every single day. So we talked right about on. your military career. At some point, you made that decision that you were going to transition back to civilian life. <laughs> you end up in the music business. So what was yeah. it that drew you to the music industry? Well, I'll say that music had me when I was a kid. Family and things started kind of deteriorating at the age of 13 for me, 14 for me. Uh, parents started divorcing. My brother left. He went in the Navy um, just to get the hell away from it. And I was sort of stuck there. So music became um, a refuge. It became a place for me to sort of escape to. And like I said, I just, I, I, I wasn't in a great place kind of thing. So I found music that, man, uh, that guy sounds really, really angry. Uh, man, I'm, I don't even know if I'm that angry, but why not? Let's go there. You know what I mean? And I started empathizing with the musicians in a way, I guess, I don't know if it was healthy or unhealthy. But then I got into like how the songs were written and I started thinking about that kind of stuff. But the reason I got out of the military and this is regretful and this is one of the things that I got to say that I wish I, is there's a lot of days that I wake up and I'm like, man, I wish I would have I wish I would have stayed in because guys that I know they're retiring. They had long careers. They did really well. You know, they're getting out. They're kicking their feet up. And, and granted, retirement is great. We can talk about that. But the idea of completing what I set out to do and failing at that because of what I saw as nepotism in the military that I thought did not exist. Every movie I saw was the guy that works the hardest gets the reward. Every movie in the, you know, thing in the military is the guy that's the strongest, the fastest, that works the hardest, that pushes everybody, that's a leader, that acts right, does what he's supposed to do on days off, does what he's supposed to do when he's you know, in uniform. That's the guy who is supposed to excel in this environment. And what happened was, um, I was spending so much time in the field that there was things happening at the battalion's level for all the other FMF corpsmen that weren't in the field that were working at the battalion aid station and in the clinic. And they were starting to get opportunities and things that I thought should have been given to me. Advancement, test taking, different things that came up. And I was just like, you know, why was I not given the, oh, you were in the field. I was just like, well, 
I still would like to move forward as I'm in the military. I mean, I love where I'm at, but I still want to, I want to progress. And I saw it as nepotism and it was, it was the first and the last time I allowed it to happen because I, I, I said, if this is nepotism at this level, I'm an E4. I don't even want to see it in staff NCO. I don't even want to see it, you know, if I decide to chief warrant or cross over into an officer situation. I just I just didn't think nepotism existed in, in that situation in the military. I thought it was code, code of honor. You know, we have a code. And I'm like, I saw it happen and it disgusted me to the point where it turned me off. But I should have pushed through. I should have persevered. I should have seen it for what it was. Instead of getting butthurt about it, I should have been like, all right, I see how it is. Now I'm going to make all of you look bad. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. I'm going to outwork all of you. Okay. If, if I don't, if I'm not just going to outwork my peers, I'm now going to outwork my peers and I'm going to outwork the leadership. And that's how I'm going to get back. At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy. Because you deserve more. So, so what did you do when you got out then? So I got out um, about three days later. I was actually working when I was on uh, I was on the USS Guam with the Marines. We were crossing over and mail call brought CDs that my guys had uh, back home. I was in a band in high school and, you know, we thought we had the right stuff. We, we practiced and practiced and raised hell and this, that, and the other thing. And, um, you know, they kept in contact. They're like, dude, you know, I, I kept writing uh, while I was in the in the military, kept journals, you know, very frequently, mostly every day, sometimes twice a day was journaling. I found that it helped me, uh, helped me cope and deal with some of the, you know, abandonment issues, the nepotism issues, the loneliness issues, the questioning, you know, what, you know, what am I doing here kind of stuff. The music they would send me was all original stuff. And then I would sit and I would write lyrics and melody to the music they would send me. So basically when I got out, uh, they said, hey, man, we got a gig if you want to come play it, show up. We, you know, the guitar player is going to sing, but if you want to, you know, you want to show up, show up. So I was like, all right. So I showed up and uh, the guitar player started singing and I was like, you remember that one? And we did it. And then I started playing it and the place went nuts and started singing it. And they're just like, man, that was awesome, dude. Dude, you're, you know, you're amazing. And I was just like, okay, maybe I'm onto something here. So uh, we just started gigging locally, playing every bar we could, playing every club we could. And we finally won a, a regional uh, battle of the bands where the winner got an album. You could you could record an album at this little studio called Interstellar. And um, that was it, man. We started from there and then the album did really well. And, you know, it was 1999 when it came out. And um, we thought we were awesome because we sold like a thousand of them in like, I don't know, a month or two. <laughs> we we were the best, you know? Did you find that was... Uh commonplace where like with you, you're able to write down what was in your head. And I think that's kind of uh, a method of kind of getting it off your chest and you were able to write it down and kind of exercise it. Do you find that was commonplace where other folks, maybe in the military law enforcement are able to do that? Or is that something that they shy away from? I wish they would. I think computers and phones have, I don't know what is disenfranchised the word, but basically they've taken the idea of pen and paper sort of out of our hands. You know what I mean? And if you spend some time with this stuff again, grab a cool pen, one you like, grab a book or something, maybe something leather bound and sit down and give it, 
give it a shot. I think you'll find that there's some really amazing stuff that you can exercise with a pen and a paper that you can't by typing. I find that to be incredibly insightful from you uh, because uh, on the training side of things, we, we preach the importance of people taking notes in training environments in their own handwriting because the way the, the mind works, they'll remember it longer and stronger. So handwriting does have a very meaningful impact. So when I'm talking about your music, man, I got to I got to zero in on one song to start with. Okay. And this was the one that, that that did it for me, dude. And, and the song is called Last Call. Mm-hmm. To t- tell me how it is that you came to be associated with that song. Yeah, that one is um, that one's a little tough, man. Like you say, you, you talk about um, empathizing. Right. So listen, I mean, even if you pick up a pen and paper and just write a curse word over and over and over and over and over and over again, because you feel that way, right? You are letting go of something, something that you have inside of you is being let go. And I'm, I'm, I'm usually, I'm, I'm like pro, I'm pro bad language. Um, because I, there's a couple of reasons that I believe that curse words and, and cursing are, are actually a good thing for the soul because they, they give you a moment to truly express an emotion. They give you that split second of emotion to give into that curse word to get that emotion out. So a lot of us, we get wrapped up into a form of communication that is insincere because, because again, there's hierarchy, there's nepotism, there's rank, file, and order. And if this guy comes to this guy, and I'm pointing as a, the low guy comes to an, an upper guy, he has to come with a, a level of professionalism or else it's deemed or seen as disrespectful. And I believe as a leader that you close the door and you allow people to speak freely. And you do that by speaking freely to them. You let them know that the bridge is open for absolutely any and all type of communication, whether it's professional and on point or absolutely erratic, sporadic and out of control. If you got a guy that that is coming and you know he's fuming to sit that guy down in a cage and him bringing his grievance or bringing the issue to you and trying to explain it to you in a way that is civil and respectful, I think is is. It's unbecoming of the leader. It's unbecoming of the higher uh, a person in the rank and file. In my opinion, you should be like, like, bro. All right, let's have it. Cut loose. Well, sir. Nope. You can stop right there. That's not. That's not what I'm effing talking about. Whatever the whatever the shit is, we're getting to the bottom of it now. This is the spot. This is the time. I want it all out. All the emotion behind it. All of the the words that you want to use. Everything's on the table. And I think that you'll find when you open up that form of that style of communication between leadership, closed door now, this is closed door. This is not in front of other people. This is not, this is not setting an example by any means. This is only between you and that person, that grieving person, that person that's having that issue. When you put forth that, that communication, it allows for a true empathetic connection. That leader can now see just how pissed you are and just how upset you are at a situation or just how angry you are, or just how overjoyed you are with a situation or unbelieved you are, or, you know, spellbound you are, whatever it is, he's now getting the full idea of what you're bringing. Now you asked where last call came from. This is going to be tough, man. A buddy of mine, um, sent me this audio recording of, um, Officer Brad Fox's last call. And Brad was a nine-year Marine. 
And that's how I sort of found out about it. He was, I believe, from the Philadelphia area or outside Pennsylvania guy. And the story, you know, I got in this email. The story was, hey, man, you got to listen to this. He's and and that's basically it. And it's just said, you know, Brad was a Marine. He was one of us. He was a brother. He had a wife and a couple kids. <clears throat> I never knew that that law enforcement did an on air final roll call. You know, in the military, we have um, a roll call where, you know, we muster up and everybody gets in formation and then they'll call a couple people that are present. Um, and then they will obviously give the name of the person who has fallen. And that was hard enough. But when I heard the, the dispatcher um, reading Brad's number, um, the first time I was like, okay, what is this? You know, clear all air for, you know, quick, you know, response. I can't remember the exact words, but you hear call out the badge number. And I'm like, okay, what, what is this? And then you hear silence and then you hear the badge number getting called again. And it's still radio silence. And the third time she calls the badge number. She's, you can hear in her voice, she's broken. And then, you know, she obviously knew Brad and, you know, he was a big part of the department. And then, you know, you hear her give, you know, the final call, the last call for Brad. And those three moments of silence after she called that badge number, I went back and listened to it. And I was like, that is the worst deathly silence I've ever heard in my life. It was, it was, is it, it was a tangible feeling of death. If that made sense. And we've all, if you've seen a dead body, you understand what, what it means. It's like, just like in stand by me, he wasn't hurt. He wasn't injured. He wasn't sick. He wasn't ill. He was dead. You know, that's what that radio was. That's what that silence is. And then you realize the finality behind it. And it was just crushing to me. Think about his wife, think about his kids, think about all his brothers and sisters and you know, that wear the uniform. And everybody that he helped along the way, all the people, you know, nine years in the Marine Corps, plus going out, serving the communities, you know, um, you know, was he a coach? You know, did he, did he, you know, drive some drunk guy home one night? Yeah, you know, all those things that, that law enforcement does and that the service military and service community does and the warrior spirit inevitably ends up doing. And then, you know, he gets ambushed, you know, chasing down a bad guy and that's it. It's over. It's done. You know, all of it is just nothing but memories now. It's like... It's like uh, a shell, you know, it's just, you pick up a seashell, there's no life in it. It's just, you know, this thing that was. So I sat down and I kind of put myself in that position. You know, what is, what would I say if they called my badge number three times? And the answer is what you hear in the song, Last Call. In the first call for the badge number, it's, you know, tell my wife I love her. And then the second call in the badge number is tell my children, you know, I'll always be there for them. And then the third call for the badge number is for those who stood beside me and, and walked the thin blue line, you know, hold your head up high and, and stay the course and finish the fight. And in the end, just ring a bell for me, send them straight to hell for me and raise a glass for me. And that's, you know, that's it. I've done my time. I've done my duty. It's time for me to move on kind of thing. And that's, uh, that's the song, Last Call. I will tell you that music hits me and hits me hard, but that is one of the most impactful songs that I have ever, ever heard. And I, I was privileged to be able to watch a recording of you performing that at a memorial service. And yeah. as many times as I've heard the song, I had tears rolling down my eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, the work you do with that song is just absolutely incredible. And for, for our listeners... 
that one right there, you can find it uh, on his album called Music on a Mission. And we'll, we'll put the link to it in, in our, our show notes. But if you're in any first responder uh, role, please listen to that song. Please listen to that song. It, it, it will be it will impact you. But uh, I, I do have to take you a little bit further because I believe it was in December of uh, 2021. You released another another album and uh, that one uh, was called Too Far Gone. And, mm-hmm. and I have a little bit of a bone to pick with you about that album. Uh, okay. Because there's another song in that one that brought tears to my eyes. Uh, and that one was called Daddy's Dance. <laughs> I, th- I thought you were going to go go a different route there. Uh, but yeah, okay. my daughter, uh, uh, my only daughter, uh, got married last year. And, and when I listened to that song the first time, buddy, it, it brought back that night with such clarity that tears were rolling down my eyes. So how did you come about that song? Mm. Yeah. Well, before you jump, before you jump to daddy's dance, there's another song on the too far gone album, uh, called survivor. Mm-hmm. And, and I never knew that in the law enforcement community, they referred to like they're like in the military. Again, the gold star family is our, the, the surviving families of those who've, who've lost their loved ones. But I started working in DC for the, um, for the memorial for fallen law enforcement, with the FOP and then later on with the National Law Enforcement Memorial Fund, Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund down there um, in D.C. as well. And I found out, you know, long story short is that Blue Line community calls the the families of the fallen survivors um, or blue royalty. And um, I had after I played last call the first time in D.C. for. I think like four, 400 law enforcement, the families of 400 law enforcement. So it ended up being thousands of people. I, I stepped off the stage and there was like a silence. Um, and I just walked over and I started kind of putting my gear away. And then they, they wrapped up. That was the end of the ceremony. It was a blue ribbon ceremony. They wrapped up, they hold a blue ribbon and then that's it. They dismiss, they, they order arms, they, they pull the colors and they dismiss. And as I'm packing up, I look up and there's, along the gate, there's just a wall of people. And I'm like, Hey guys. And they're just like, you know, their tears are in their faces and they're like, can we, can we talk to you? Can we hold you? I was like, yeah, man. So I just went over and I just started hugging these, these families. And they're like, you have no idea what you've given us with last call. You gave us our, you know, our fallen, you know, our, our Bobby, our, our Steve, our John, they, you gave us John's last words. We never got those, you know, we never were able to hear him say those words. So kind of holding these families, um, in my heart, the one lady is like, I wish that, that I could write a song like that back to my husband and, uh, <clears throat> damn, <clears throat> my wife was cutting onions. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's funny you say that because, uh, there are certain times where I'll hear a song and I'll say, I, that person just wrote something that I was feeling and I wish I mm-hmm. could do that. So it, it, it it's it's a gift you have and you can convey something that someone else is feeling. They can't quite say it themselves. Yeah. And so like, again, like that's exactly right. Um, it is, it's, it's, it's empathy to the 10th degree is basically the way to describe it. And, um, you know, I said, I said, consider it done. And I sat down and I worked on survivor over and over for days and days. And I was, I kept playing it and recording it and playing it and recording. I'm like, this, this is never going to be last call. And then my wife, 
which we all, we work in house. Our whole record label is here. So I have a studio in my basement. I do all my print work for my t-shirts out in my garage. My wife has an office upstairs. So she's doing all booking logistics. I'm doing print work and, and working down here for socials. And long story short is she's like, she heard me working it and, uh, she yells down. She's like, it's never going to be last call. And I was just like, <laughs> you're right. It's not last call. It's completely different. It's, and so I scratched everything and I came up with survivor as that basically exactly what that woman said to me. She's like, I never heard my husband's last words. I never heard the shot that killed him. I never heard, you know, any of that. And that, that's where I put myself. I was like, okay, don't sing it from me don't sing it from the fallen officer sing it from her sing it from where she's at and that's what survivor came around and again that has been another that's the follow-through to last call so if you hear last call go look up survivor and that's the words back to the fallen officer so anyway that's survivor and it goes hand in hand with last call but you actually brought up daddy's dance but i just want to point out there though uh survivor is another Another fantastic piece right there. And I highly suggest our listeners go and look that up. Yeah. And, you know, all my music's on uh, Amazon, iTunes, anywhere music is sold. Um, if you want the CD uh, or if you just go to DaveBrayUSA.com, you don't, I, I would prefer actually not going through Amazon or iTunes. Just go to DaveBrayUSA.com, look up music and you can download, you know, each song individually. Or I can, you know, if you purchase a t-shirt, I always give a free CD with every t-shirt. So you'll get, um, you'll get both CDs with, with a t-shirt purchase. It's just my way of saying thank you. But you brought up Daddy's Dance and a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to, dance with my daughter to that song. I'm like, that's not really what it's about. It, it, it is about that. 100%. The wedding, um, is about that, but this is the song for exactly the same purpose that you mentioned. It it's so that you remember the dance that you had with your daughter. And that's what got missed somehow was that I was actually writing that song, not to be danced to, although it works. I was actually writing that song so that the dad would remember the dance that he had with his daughter. And that was what you were saying. That was, that's exactly what it was written for. Took me back to a different place in time and but both happy and sad, but man, it, it hit me. And if somebody was interested in bringing you in to play some music for him, uh, do they need to go to the website as well? Yeah. Um, you know, again, my wife does all the booking the PR, the, the, the outreach and stuff like that. So she handles that. And yeah, if you go to the, if you go to the website, DaveBrayUSA.com, you'll, just hit, uh, you know, info, home, booking, uh, just snoop around on the website, you know what I mean? And, and look around and see if, see if you see anything you like. we got a great apparel line. Um, it's all patriotic and faith-based. we got a lot of great videos that are actually on the website again uh, that, are, that are just, like I said, we've, we've worked with some amazing award-winning videographers over the years. We worked with Minus Red, which is out of uh, Rhode Island. We did the Amazing Grace video. We work with Curtis Boggs. He's a huge videographer out of Richmond, Virginia. He's done shot. I guarantee you've seen his commercials on television. He's done a bunch of really great TV commercials. We've worked with Alden Funkhauser and Funkhauser Productions out of Pennsylvania. We've worked with Matthew JC out of Texas. We've just worked with so many different people. TNT Productions out of Boston. I got to give shout outs to all these people. They're they're just as good in their art as I, I could never grab a camera and do what they do. Same way that a lot of those guys couldn't ever grab a microphone and a guitar and do what I do. So it's cool to find people in the world that not only respect what you're doing and your craft, but really want to bring it 
the same amount of professionalism and respect that you've put into your music. So that's a hard thing to find. I would encourage our listeners uh, to go over to the website and check it out. Uh, if you're looking for someone to come and play an event, he's played a whole bunch of different types of events. The music is fantastic. The message is even better. And dare I say it, that the the artist himself is better than both. We start to wrap things up here. Uh, I first of all want to say thank you. A sincere thank you for your service. I do believe that uh, military service is one of the most honorable things that an American citizen can do. So thank you for your service uh, with the military. But I also want to say thank you for last call. I want to say thank you for Survivor, for being that mouthpiece for those in this profession and those left behind in this profession. I appreciate that work, and 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 we wish you only the best. Thanks, man. We're, we're in our show notes. Uh, Brent's going to throw some stuff up there for our listeners. Uh, Brent, cool. a little bit emotional after this one, my man. No, and I think that lends itself to it because you're uh, you're doing a service for for those. Uh, in the law enforcement field who uh, you're the voice for the voiceless, I guess, for lack of a better term. And that, you know, people, I get asked that and they're like, why are you, why are you a law enforcement advocate? And I'm just, because they, a lot of these guys can't go out there. A lot of these guys are, are walking away from, from law enforcement because they can't get out there. And I talk about that member. I talked about that open form of communication, that frustration, that, that sort of bar that has to be set when it comes to, well, I'm a law enforcement officer and it, it's, it's tough on these guys because they're, even when they're on, on off the job, they're on the job. You know what I mean? It's like, they see something go down. It's not like they can just turn around and walk away. Hey, were you there? Your vehicle was there. Are you sure you didn't, you know, you see anything, nothing. I was in the bathroom. I mean, you can only use that excuse so many times. And you know, that the law enforcement profession is, um, you know, you say, you know, you appreciate a military service. There's a huge, huge difference about, being in military and law enforcement, you know, once you're trained up and you're on the job as a law enforcement officer, that's it, man. You're every day you're deployed. I mean, you're deployed every single day. The second that your foot hits your threshold of your door and you walk outside, you're on like it is on on and you put on a uniform. It's like, okay, now I've just put a bullseye on myself. Okay. Now what? So not only after that, I'm going to put myself in this car. That's got all this stuff on it that everybody's going to know I'm a cop. It's, it's gotta be daunting, especially when you don't have any backing or not a lot of backing from the, the media. When people do catch you, you know, some of these law enforcement officers who are less than trained or caught in situations and they act inappropriately. It's like, my gosh, you would think that it was the end of the world, man. Viral video of, you know, the, the whole border patrol guy, you, you know, they, where they said that he was trying to whip an immigrant when these guys have been literally carrying whips around horses and that's how they train their horses. They, they use these, <laughs> these whips, these reins, uh, to train horse, and it's it's just it's daunting to me, you know, if to be in law enforcement today to know how much effort you put into the job, and see how much lack of respect, I guess, is being shown by the community from which that you protect and serve. It's got to weigh on you after five years, ten years. 20 years, not seeing any progression to the good, not seeing any type of light at the end of the tunnel. And then as a musician, I can stand on the outside and say, Hey, here, take this, use this. I hope this helps. And that's it. That's all I can do. I can't, I can't build you a boat. I can't 
fly a plane, but I, I can give you this little piece of music that you can listen in your car once a day and remember why you're out there. Remember, there's a bunch of us out here that appreciate you. And that's why I'm a law enforcement advocate, because I know damn well the day the day all hang up their uniforms, that blue line goes away and there's no such thing as civility anymore. It's only anarchy. And I don't want that. And I don't think a lot of people who think they want that want that. So that's where I'm at. As we close here, uh, echoing your message from one of the shirts that you have available, stay the course, finish the fight, never surrender. But uh, thank you to our listeners today. Dave, I can't say thank you enough for being on here. It's a pleasure and honor uh, for you to have you on here. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll put uh, links to all your social media accounts and your website, and folks can find your music right there as they go awesome. to uh, our website. And you guys can find all the past episodes on our website. You can also uh, contact us if you'd like to be a guest on Between the Lines. We'd love to hear from you. You can always reach out to us at Between the Lines at virtualacademy.com and make sure you check us out at our website at Between the Lines of virtualacademy.com. And you can also find us through all your favorite podcast providers. DaveBrayUSA.com is where you'll find him. Thank you so much, Dave. We, uh, we loved having you on today. I appreciate it, guys. And thanks. Keep doing what you're doing, man. 